So it's really like that. The more you dip the externally driven mind, as I was saying, the field of Dwight, if the more you can take a dip, turn it within, sit with yourself as a yogi, curious, and also not engaged in what you experience or what you observe, but rather knowing yourself as that ever-present, unchanging observer, knower, then this starts to saturate the mind with the color of your true self. And of course, that comes uh, through and kind of radiates through your life in in all ways, absolutely in all in all ways it's not always obvious at first and there's definitely challenges that one has to really um, go go through and I think those challenges only fortify your your conviction to know yourself welcome to a curious yogi podcast I'm your host Bobby and these are my conversations with sadhaks satsangis and other spiritual seekers Join us as we discuss and discover what it means to live a spiritual life and walk the yogi's path. Each week you'll gain insights into your own practice as we share the stories and wisdom of those that walk the path with us. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. I'm so delighted for this week's guest as they are not only a brilliant spiritual teacher, but someone who has had a profound impact on my own sadhana and spiritual growth. It's my honor to introduce Shika to the show. Shika is a modern spiritual teacher and living example of what she teaches. Originally from New Zealand, Shika has spent 35 years living in the Himalayas of India, immersed in a yogic lifestyle of meditation and satsang, or self-knowledge. Shika has led many meditation retreats in the Himalayas, out of which an international satsang community flourished online. In 2020, due to the pandemic, circumstances drew her back to New Zealand, where she opened the Wisdom of Meditation Center, offering regular classes, satsangs, and retreats. Shika fosters her love of singing Sanskrit stotrams and mantras with her kirtan group, the Spirit of Kirtan. And having deeply studied the teachings from the Vedic tradition of non-dualism, Advaita Vedanta, she is a guiding light who shares this ancient knowledge in a relevant and accessible format. And I will definitely attest to the brilliance of her kirtans, her teachings, her satsangs, I'm just so excited that you're here. So welcome to the show, Shika. Thank you, darling. Yeah, it's so um, lovely to have you here. I've been tuning into your online satsangs pre-COVID, before yes. online satsang was like all the rage. I, You were yes. ahead of the game and just traveling around the world, being able to tune in to your satsangs every Sunday has been such a gift. For me for the past three years so I wanted to start by just appreciating you for the offering that you've put out wonderful wonderful so the podcast is about sadhana and the journey of the sadhak and has really come out of a curiosity on my own spiritual path to connect with others who have walked before me or are walking with me I guess so in that vein you could just start by expressing what has your sadhana been for you in your life? 
Uh, full of inspiration, that's for sure. <laughs> it's, um, it is such an inexplicable opening of the consciousness uh, to deeper dimensions of being and deeper dimensions of how we can connect with each other. I think every human being is looking how to connect deeply, whether they know it or not. Everyone really wants that deeper connection with each other. And because of the consciousness is not able to expand often uh, into understanding ourselves on a deeper level, then there's a certain kind of unease that comes when one just stays on the surface. So for me, the sadhana has opened all kinds of channels to experience your life in, in its fullness, at its depth. It's such an inclusive way of living and, mm-hmm. and an inclusive way of being with each other also. If we go back to, you know, I can just imagine you. I only know you now. I've known you for about 10 years, but I'm imagining you as 22-year-olds. I imagine you had a lot of fire mm-hmm. in, in you. And, and like, were you always a curious seeker to come to India at such a young age and to know with such conviction I want to dedicate my life to this path? Was it something, were you always a yeah. seeker in that sense? Yeah, I think like all children, they are naturally open to the sensitivity of all living things, plants, animals, human beings. And there is this innate openness that gets closed down actually through our education process very often or through the the, the way that society demands you to relate to this um, body in a more functional way. And there is a kind of process that one goes through in their growing up years that often uh, one doesn't know how to discover, as I was saying before, that kind of depth that we know is there. And the oneness of all beings that all children experience is often through their imaginary world. It's all this connected um, energy that they tune into, and they're very sensitive to pick up on energies, even without someone needing to um, give words to it. But they don't know how to give words to it themselves. And so I think there's always an openness to be curious. And I think when that, uh, especially during the teenage years, one finds that there's no one who's really talking about what you're experiencing inside. I think they either one closes it down and just ignores it and kind of puts a lid on it, or they feel a kind of inner unease that they're not finding um, a way to explain to themselves that openness that they feel because it is not what the world is often presenting. And definitely through our education process and, as I said, the demands of our society, it's very much focused on what you present to the world, how you look, how you appear, what you have. And um, I grew up in a family that, on the surface, had everything. We had uh, success and we had a certain status or uh, there was a certain sense of greatness that one you know sh- should have felt from everything that we had and i couldn't feel it 
And so I, it confused me because here I was, I had every opportunity open to me, good education, I had a good family situation, I had, we had wealth, we had, I had a very healthy body, I was able to make friends and, and I was active and very engaged in uh, school and all that and accepted by my friends. So on the surface, it didn't seem like there was anything amiss. And yet there was this inner unease that you have described as a kind of fire. And that fire can uh, start to burn when you don't understand why there's this difference between the outside appearance and the inner yearning for freedom, for connection, for love, for joy. And so when I was... um, quite young I started to experience that unease and that fire and I think that did inspire me actually luckily uh, to seek um, something uh, something more than just what was being offered to me through our through our education system and it's interesting because you studied to be a teacher didn't you before I did yes So you really saw the education system, I'm sure, from the inside out. I did, which was interesting because I did have a sense even then that I thought, and I don't really know where this thought came from, to be honest. I thought, what children really need to learn is how to be resourceful. Maybe it was through the experience of my own uh, being a student myself. I didn't think that just learning all kinds of information was terribly helpful. I thought if you empower the child, then they'll become resourceful to find the information that they need. And that was an inspiration to go into teaching because it was a, definitely a, a, a deeper um, way of being with the children. And I loved it. I really loved being with the kids and I loved watching them flourish and I loved being able to influence them in such a way that they could tap into their inner power. And yet, at the same time, I was not really able to tap into my own inner power, although I knew it was there. And I had this sense, I was looking from quite a young age um, for a meditation teacher, even before it became fashionable. And um, But what was available at that time, and that's in the late 70s. Uh, yeah, so... I think it was yeah late 70s and early 80s that a lot of what meditation or the meditation that was presented at that time in the west was definitely through the uh with an indian guru and through slightly cultish kind of groups and i was really turned off that i didn't want to belong to a group i didn't want to take on a kind of cultish identity or even a spiritual identity. I didn't even describe myself as wanting something spiritual. I actually just wanted to know how to direct that inner fire from unease to ease, from a restlessness to peace, and how to live with myself, how to be comfortable in myself and not, uh, even though I had a lot of inspiration and I felt um, a great sense of opportunity, as I said, and um, that there was a lot there that could be explored. But I knew fundamentally if I did not 
know myself, and maybe I didn't have the language to say that at that time, if I could not direct this fire to be helpful to me, then it was going to be uh, unhelpful and work against me. But because what was offered to me at that time was this groups that I found a little bit too groupy, <laughs> I remained uneasy and until I was uh, 22. So that's quite a few years from you know, 15, 16 years old to 22. When you're young, that's a lot of years to be living with that fire inside <laughs> and not finding its direction. And it took me into all kinds of uh, directions that... Uh, made me realize more and more urgently how important it is to to truly know myself first and what kind of a teacher could I be if I was not able to influence my students from uh, from my own direct experience and to give them to give them what I knew was possible and the potentiality of all people, and not only my students, my, my loved ones and my friends. How could I be there if I was not there for myself? So when I was 22, I had a very dear friend who I had gone to high school with, who I had lost touch with for many years. And she had gone to India to visit a friend uh, and to visit her sister also who was there. And... Um, she came back after having met my teacher, our teacher, Swamiji, Swami Sham, and she came back so lit and so full of inspiration, and she thought of me because she knew I was a seeker and interested in meditation. And she called me, and there was one... Um, <laughs> My story is too long. <laughs> no, it's perfect. <laughs> One quick story. This is a show for stories. Oh, so good. <laughs> One quick story, which is a little bit mystical, which is fun to just play with. I had been, there was a, a bookshop in Wellington uh, called Unity Bookshops, uh, Unity Bookshop. And uh, I loved the name of it even, Unity and I would go there every week and buy some kind of book. And as many of the listeners may know, there's a very well-known book called A Course in Miracles. And of course, the title is intriguing. And I bought this book and I started reading. And it focuses on meditation a little bit like pray praying, like, like you sit and you guide your attention into prayer. It's like a guided intention, I would say now. Anyway, I was trying all different things, and, and I started sitting in meditation as they prescribed and started praying. And uh, I can't remember exactly um, what it was with the other experiences, but I definitely remember this one. I had gone to my mother's house for the weekend, and... I went out into her garden and I sat and I closed my eyes as was inspired from A Course in Miracles and I started praying and I said, Dear God, please give me some direction. And I kept repeating it like a mantra, although at that time I had no idea what mantra was. I said, Dear God, please give me some direction. Dear God, please give me some direction. 
And just at that time, uh, my mother came out into the garden and said that I had a phone call. So I went in, and those days, no cell phones. <laughs> I went in and answered the phone, and it was my friend. Uh, her name's Pip, Philippa. And uh, she had just come back from India. So I went up to see her. She was just living just up the road. And I can't describe it. She talked and talked all about what she had discovered in India and what she had discovered through the teachings of our guru. But to be honest, I don't even know if I really even heard what she was saying. I just had, in in a sense, like a radar just gave me that direction. I have to go to this place. I knew nothing about the place, really. I knew no one there other than Philippa, who now was back in New Zealand. And I just knew I had to go. And I sold my car, and within a month, I was there. (laughs) So (laughs) you can say all kinds of things about what led me there. Uh, But it was not a, a process, a mental process that I went through. It really was as if something struck at the core of my being that resonated. And one thing I did remember, uh, thinking, yes, this is for me, was that it didn't focus on the, on the structure. It really went just to the core of the teachings. And a lot of the ashrams and meditation groups focus a lot on the, the practices and what time in the morning you get up and when you do the practices and how you do the practices and kind of gives a lot of structure in the day, which is helpful also. But I knew somehow I needed more than just structure. I didn't want to just take on an identity and follow through a kind of routine. I So, yeah, that uh, something struck deeper with me. And, of course, when I met Swamiji, well, that's... Um, that's the living example of freedom because he was not bound to any structure. He just radiated such a, a, a delight. More, I was going to say ease, but it's so much more than ease. He's completely at ease, of course, with himself, and you feel at ease in his presence. But it was much more than that. It was, it was like looking in the mirror at yourself as you want yourself to be. And it's all that which a person seeks, freedom, love, joy, unity, oneness, uh, inspiration, wisdom. There it is, all reflected through his form. But the beauty is you knew it was not restricted to a person. It was the potentiality of all beings. And that's that inclusive oneness that I knew I had been looking for. Where are we truly one and united with each other at this level? And the rest was just wanting to live in that space and um, mature it in my own self. I can really relate to your story of just hearing the knowledge or seeing it reflected through your friend and just knowing that you, this core of you is attracted to that and to seek that. I can... We're just totally relating your expression. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on 
So, you, you know, you've spent so long in this ashram in India studying non-dual philosophy or Advaita Vedanta. I'm hoping you could expand on what that is and mm. encompasses for the teachings, which, you know, you've been, you're a master. So if you can enlighten us with what is that? Ah, that's a great um, question. Because what I was describing in my youth is the experience that a person has, and every person has, of all that which has been presented to them is all that which is of things, of experiences, of all this field, you could say, or realm of differences. Different experiences, all the different emotional states, different thoughts, highs and lows, goods and bads, rights and wrongs, and all that which is presented to a, to a person in the world and what is one is expected to live in, in that realm is the realm of differences. So Advaita means that which is not of difference. Advaita. Dwight meaning dual, difference. What is not of difference? Because on the level of difference, one has to have, which means it's inherent within the power of that realm, one either has to have attraction for it or an aversion to it. It is just, just as the nature of water is that when you put your hand in it, your hand gets wet. <laughs> You cannot avoid that. The same as the nature of the field of dualism, of differences, the realm of separation because of those differences. The nature is that one has to be engaged in it, either pulling towards it or pushing away from it. And this push and pull is what is keeping a person uneasy. I want, I don't want. I need and I need this not to be. <laughs> it's the same need. I need something more to be added to me, and I need something to go away from me or to be absent from me so that I can be at ease. And one is looking for ease, for love, for peace, for joy, and certainly for freedom. But if they're looking for it in the realm of differences, in the realm of Dwight, then one is inherently bound to be uneasy in this push and pull, in this wanting and not wanting, which is a complete paradox to the mind because how can we be experiencing two seemingly different things at the same time? And that's what creates a confusion, that we both want and don't want at the same time, that we feel whole and complete in one way at our deeper core, and yet we are interacting always on the level of this um, experience of being incomplete and somehow trying to fulfill that incompleteness through things, through relations, and through experiences. But as I said, things and relations and experiences on the level of Dwight, they'll inherently keep one from morning till night in a state of agitation. The more one is aware of that agitation, 
the more one has the opportunity then to realize what is Vedant, which means to come to realize that Ved, which means knowledge, that the knowledge of things, the knowledge of differences, is has come to an end, has come to Ant, Vedant, meaning it is not satisfying. It is not the realm where you will f- know yourself complete. So when the knowledge that is of differences, one recognizes there is an end to that, meaning it does not go deep enough. There is a boundary to that. And the inner being is wanting to go beyond that boundary and find the Ved, find what is that knowledge which is infinite, which is not something that can be added to me or taken away from me, but it is the completeness of my being. So Adwait, where we can open our mind to a realm beyond just this waking state, realm of differences, mind-made, mentally constructed, in the realm of differences, where we can go beyond that end and we can go into the infinite space of knowledge Adwait, non-differential, non-personal even, And that is our true unity, and that's where we dwell in our inner core. If you can bring the mind, uh, if you can bring the mind there, (laughs) if you can open the mind also, which by no fault of its own is restricted to this waking dimension of differences and separation, but the mind has the potentiality to go beyond itself. And that is what is called self knowledge. So self-inquiry opens the door beyond the personal self to true self-knowledge, which is the self of all selves. Where are we unified? Where are we the same? And you can very simply uh, bring your mind to recognize that, that all beings say, I am. But what follows I am, I am Bobby, I am Shakar, I am in New Zealand, I am in Canada, I am great, I am small, I am less, I am more, I am loved, I am unloved. All that which comes after I am is of difference, is of changing also. But the I am remains the same. So I, the pure I, is that Adwait. And if we can discover that I that is not the personal, not the Dwait, not of division, and not of Ragdwaish, the push and pull of the experience of differences, then this opens to a complete knowledge of oneself, and thereby a freedom and ease within oneself, and connecting at that deep level, which is pure love. (laughs) Beautiful. Wow, what a full expanded definition, which is what I was seeking there. And if someone, even I'm thinking of myself, I mean, I'm not just beginning self-inquiry, but I still feel fresh in my self-inquiry. But, you know, I, I understand that one 
seeks that self that you know that true self but it's so it can become so mixed and i think we even talked about this the other day in satsang Mm -hmm. of the mixing and can you speak to that to someone who's on this path of self-inquiry and how to get unmixed lovely well first of all you said you are fresh to the inquiry. Let the inquiry be ever fresh. <laughs> always <laughs> yeah. remain fresh. And that's the amazing, amazing thing. Now remind me if I, if I um, go on a tangent and forget your question about the mixture. But let me first say about inquiry. The Curious Yogi, you've developed this podcast. Congratulations. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful opportunity for people to really uh, hear about this amazing knowledge. We can say the satsang or this uh, self-knowledge. It's something which is really evolving out of the the societies, very many, many people in society realizing the urgent need for meditation. Now out of that recognition is emerging the need for satsang, for this wisdom of the adwait, of the non-dual self to be recognized. But, of course, uh, inquiry, as the uh, title of your podcast, The Curious Yogi, this is the inquiring being. This needs to um, always stay alert. And in this, it is not a linear process. Igniting that fire is fire. And it's we must get out of this kind of uh, linear process like as if we went through school that there's grade one, there's grade two, there's grade three. Of course, the deepening happens uh, and you become more and more established in that depth where you're not thrown by doubt that comes through just living in our body self and all that which the body engages with can throw, um, definitely throw doubt in your path. But it's not the sense that you need to progress in a linear way. Every challenge and every opportunity that comes is that uh, igniting force that can allow us to go deeper and deeper in to stand in our self-knowledge. The self-knowledge itself does not progress. Um, so it's only the uh, alignment with that and being established in that doubtlessly standing in yourself as that that matures for sure. So remain ever fresh and I love the title Curious Yogi and this word yogi also I still haven't forgotten your question about mixed <laughs> mixed and unmixed but just let me say also about yogi originally The yogi who went into the forest and started to meditate was described actually as a scientist. It had nothing actually to do with religion at that time. It was the inner scientist and the instrument of their science was the opening the third eye, which means the power of perception to look within. In this practice, In this meditation practice, one became an unprejudiced observer. 
What does unprejudiced mean? Not getting, not taking yourself, not prejudging yourself to be what the mind has been conditioned to think that you are. So this inner looking, this opening of our higher perception, which means opening the higher perception in the mind, this can be ignited and remains lit. And this is why it's important. I think if I had one, maybe this would be the question that you were meant to ask me at the end. I'm not sure um, if I'm jumping ahead here. But while it's on my mind to say, I think if I had one important message I would like to convey to your listeners is that very often meditation is misunderstood that there is something innately wrong with the mind and the mind needs to be somehow pushed down or quietened or suppressed or somehow denigrated in a certain way and it's made the often, very often the culprit. And it's it comes with a description of monkey mind or drunken mind. And often I hear these kind of descriptions making the mind the problem. Whereas in fact, actually, this comes now to your question about mixture. The problem is not in the mind itself. The problem is, or if one prob- means by problem, the sense of difficulty one has within themselves and the struggle one experiences within themselves is due to this mixture. Not due to the mind, because the mind is is the divine design. And there's actually no fault with that if one understands exactly how it functions. And this inner looking, this turning within through meditation to be able to observe the mind in all its complexity and its brilliant design, one then starts to be able to sift out and this is the mixture that you were talking about the the I the I am state from the mind that is describing the external the I am of stuff the I am of experience the I am of emotional experiences the I am of all that which we Um, experience in the waking state the eye of difference so in meditation one is not to try and throw away the mind first of all that won't work (laughs) one will just struggle with their mind but one is to become an unprejudiced observer a yogi one is to open up the inner observation which is not able to be confined to any description other than it is pure light, pure consciousness, pure existence. It is a great fire of knowledge. And when we can open to this and open our mind to that, it becomes such an amazing study. And in that study, which is essentially, there's a core teaching of Advaita Vedanta, that the core teaching is described in two Sanskrit words, vivek vairagya. Vivek means the discernment, which is what you had asked. How can we unmix? And this through the meditation practice and through this inquiring mind, 
especially through the inquiring mind, we, we start to discern what is that I am state, the pure I, that is always present, unchanging, and what is that which I observe in the field of change? All that which is added after the I am, you could say. This discernment creates an unmixing and brings a great clarity to your inquiring mind. Now the mind is bud, is pure, is enlightened, is clear as to what is the purpose of your life. And then with this clarity comes along also in, in tandem with this, they describe it as two wings of the bird. You have to have two wings in order to fly. You need vivek, this power to discern, the power to uh, discern the unmixing of my true inner self, unchanging, ever-present and pure from all that which I experience in the mind, in the emotional body, in the physical body, and in all the experiences that come with that, vivek. Along with it, the other wing is vairagya. Remember before I said ragdwesh, which is the push and the pull of the state, waking state of differences. So rag, the attraction towards, dwesh, the repelling from or the pushing away of, so vairagya, to vairag, to be able to indraw our senses that are in this push and pull, seeking satisfaction in the realm of the differences, of the changing. And in meditation, just by sitting still, closing one's eyes, allowing the senses to indraw, which is actually very natural for a human being, because we do it every night when we go to sleep. We don't, uh, we don't say, now I must do sleeping. We create an environment and a situation for us where the senses start to indraw slowly. And then sleep is the natural state when the senses indraw. Well, meditation is similar, but it's not going into sleep. It's actually going into a true wakefulness, not the waking that is of waking state, mind differences, dwight, but the mind that now truly wakes up to itself, pure consciousness. This process of indrawing the senses and turning that mind back to its source, to itself, is vairagya. So these two words I find most key coming from this wisdom tradition, Advaita Vedanta, vivek vairagya. In this way, the two wings of the bird, you will be able to fly. Fly in your love, fly in your freedom, fly in the space of knowledge of your true self. And there's nothing more splendid and brilliant and most completely um, satisfying. (laughs) Even the word satisfying doesn't really convey. It's that wholeness of being that one discovers in themselves. So that's the mixture, uh, as you uh, asked, how it can be remedied 
through this practice, meditation and satsang, the inquiry allowing the mind to be lit and brilliant to observe, not to observe a concept of what spiritual is or what a yogi is or what love is, freedom is, not a concept of what we think it should be, but a very, very clear way of observing such that this Vivek Vairagya becomes a, your greatest tool to open to these uh, infinite and vast states of consciousness and states of being. <laughs> Would you say that Vivek and Vairagya, like once we begin to contemplate it in the meditation, then can we experience Vivek and Vairagya in the waking state as well? Or is it... Yes, Is it a practice that's only in meditation? Ah, brilliant. Lovely. So the practice, one needs to take some time to be still, to, uh, as I said before, allow the senses to indraw, because the whole environment of the mind will start to take on the color of the inner being rather than the outer experiences. And in that then, you need that practice. And of course, then when one comes to open their eyes, the waking state, which means actually only as you move the body into action and the mind moves into functioning mode. <laughs> how to function with these bodies, how to interact with people, how to use language, how to uh, do the functioning things. They will they will be taking on the color of your meditation practice. So ultimately, as one matures more and more in this practice, there becomes less distinction between the meditation practice and what you're describing as the waking state. Mm. There's less difference in the two being two states. There is a lovely description they use in the scriptures. They say that if you take a white cloth and you dip it into blue dye, if you just only dip it in there once, it will be, it will have the shade of blue. And you, the more you dip it into that dye, the deeper the saturation of the color. So it's really like that. The more you dip the externally driven mind, as I was saying, the field of Dwight, if the more you can take a dip, turn it within, Sit with yourself as a yogi, curious, and also not engaged in what you experience or what you observe, but rather knowing yourself as that ever-present, unchanging observer, knower. Then this starts to saturate the mind with the color of your true self. And of course, that comes uh, through and kind of radiates through your life in in all ways, absolutely in all, in all ways. It's not always obvious at first, and there's definitely challenges that one has to really um, go go through. And I think those challenges only fortify your your conviction to know yourself. They don't actually act as a barrier if you're, especially if you can stay plugged into satsang, which means the reminder of your true self then that direction leads you always back. That those circumstances and situations that appear 
to oust you from your your sense of self, and uh, it it they actually work to uh, to make you ever um, more and more established, more convinced of your unchanging, ever present nature. I'm I'm thinking of my own self in my practice when those times where I felt so established I've got I've got something figured out and then inevitably something rocks me and I know from my own experience that those are the times when I feel more called even more so than when not to go to satsang and to be in the company of satsang mm. and I was hoping you could speak to the importance of satsang for the one who's on a spiritual path or for who's coming up against those challenges like you just described. Yes, absolutely. It's the most important thing, even more, I'd say, than meditation. Although a satsang will have meditation also and is one and the same, really. But one can also, if they're only meditating without the influence of this wisdom teaching and, as you said, someone who is walking the path with you, who has seen the, this pattern again and again and again and has again and again, uh, through those patterns, uh, been able to um, strengthen and be established in their unchanging self, then this influence has more power than if you're just sitting alone meditating because very often one can be meditating just on their concepts and uh, our concepts get uh, shaken and they need to be shaken and sometimes that shaking is not comfortable and sometimes that shaking feels uh, a sense that uh, you know as you would standing on shaky ground what am I standing on? Where is my security? Everything has been thrown up. I can't go back to just living an unconscious life and pretending that all the things and the experiences are going to fulfill me. You can't go back. <laughs> you can't pretend that the senses will fulfill you anymore. You can't pretend that experiences are going to bring you freedom and joy. You can't pretend that these relationships, when they're on a superficial level, are going to uh, satisfy you. So you, you can't go back into pretending. So you need always that inspiration. How do I now um, not just be sitting meditating on my concepts? How can I really take the shaky ground and make it, a, make it the inspiration to find the ultimate ground? Not just that um, the, if the ground is dependent on a thing or a person or an experience or a situation or some kind of emotional state, which basically means if, it, if it's dependent on body-mind, then it's going to fail you ultimately. So how to become established in your true ground, adishtan, it's, it's a word that says your, your, true, your true ground, but it's not the ground that is of physical. It's the ground of pure conscious being. And this brings me actually to, it, it will always come in my mind, the mantra, amaramham, madramham. This mantra is so essential and really encapsulates everything we need to know. Amaram, what is that 
essential ground that is unchanging, eternal, ever-present, amr, unable to be destroyed. Standing on the platform of our mental states, our emotional states, or our physical situations will be destroyed. They are destructible. And in our inner being, we somehow know it, which is why we can never truly trick ourselves or fool ourselves to feel secure there. So how now to stand on secure ground, Amram, the ground that is of your eternal being? Hum, I am. The I am state is that. Hum means I am. As I was describing before, the I am that comes before experience, before even the waking mind arose. Hum is Amram, indestructible, ever-present, unchanging, this is the ground. This is the consciousness which has no limits. This is the consciousness which every being has the potential to open to. Amaram ham. I am the eternal being. Madhuram. Knowing this, established in our indestructible selves, Madhuram, that is the release of all struggle. The struggle that is of this ragdwesh, this pushing and pulling, the contradictions in the mind that keep one uneasy, all gets released in knowing oneself amaram. Then this bliss or this ease and freedom arises spontaneously, I am madhuram, which essentially is not a bliss of experience like a high. It is that deep inner connection with oneself that is pure contentment, fullness of being. And then there's no running after something to complete oneself. There is no need to throw something away in order that I should not be bothered by something. And the push and the pull rest in this completeness of being Madhuramham, Amaramham, Madhuramham. I tell you, this is the real satsang. And our guru gave us this mantra. He shared this teaching. All is encompassed in this mantra. I can't express enough my love of this mantra. And sometimes it's the only thing that makes sense to me is this mantra. And I repeat it frequently. And when you feel that ground is shaking or maybe feels that there is no ground at all and you're free falling and you're grabbing onto something and you feel, where is my practice? Where is that knowledge? I've lost sight of it. I can't find a grip. I'm feeling everything is upside down. I'm feeling a tremendous pressure on me from all that is expected in my life. Repeat the mantra. Amaram ham, madram ham, amaram ham, madram ham. At first your mind will go, oh, that's not going to be helpful. I need to get a grip. I need to somehow make my life, you know, sustainable. I need to find ground. I need to improve things. I need to improve myself. I need to have less of this and more of that. And this is just grabbing onto straws. It's not finding that deep underlying existence of your being. I am the indestructible, pure conscious being, complete and full. Just repeat it, even if you don't, even if you don't find uh, any 
meaning in it. Even just as a vibration, one can repeat that mantra and it will lead them out of that uncertainty and um, lead them back to yourself. It was interesting hearing you express so beautifully and fully about the mantra. And I'm thinking of my own self also, again, as usual, Mm -hmm. as one does. But in those times when the mind is gripping for something and, and in the world right now, it's, you know, satsang somehow is still sort of this elusive, it's almost overlooked. People say, do meditation, mm-hmm. do yoga, do mindfulness. And, you know, you're expressing and showing like the importance of satsang and how full and complete the satsang space is. Why do you think it's so overlooked in in our modern world when we need it the most when mm-hmm. right now more than any time we are struggling collectively for that which satsang offers yes i think there is a a evolution going on that it's even written in the scriptures kali yuga there was an era a yuga of of the machine age And we have developed ourselves through industry, through the information age, through the computer age, through uh, all that which is mechanical. Uh, We have evolved our lives in so many beneficial ways also uh, with the potential to free up time for uh, this awakening into meditation. But very often one just has uh, not been able to find how they can use the benefits of this machine age to free up time in order for one to have time to meditate. So I think there is an evolution that one needed to become disillusioned also, that the machine age and the benefits of that were really only for us to free up time for meditation, not for us to find our satisfaction in the machine itself. Mm. So there is a certain disillusionment with that that people are realizing, like, look, I've got a computer, I've got my cell phone, I've got everything I need to be plugged in, and I'm still restless. I'm, in fact, more restless and more dissatisfied than I was. So I don't think that there is anything um, wrong happening. I think there is an awakening to the need for satsang, that's coming along with the disillusionment of our our machine age, which has been going on for a couple of hundred years, so it's not something new. With that emergence of our privileges, there's never been a time that we've had so much um, help and assistance through machines. You know, there was a time that, you know, one had to get out in the morning, from morning till night, they were milking their cows, tending their fields, cutting firewood, you know, um, doing all those things just to exist on the body level. But we have to learn how all these modern devices, they're not just to keep experiencing the external, which means drawing us more and more uh, destructively into the realm of differences, into the world of appearance. So now the, the, the mechanical age is very much focused on the appearance of one's looks, the appearance of what one has to show for themselves, the appearance of one's um, performance. But there's a kind of disillusionment in that that's happening too. 
the same time, and there thereby lies a um, a need to go deeper, to know oneself deeper than the appearance. And there's nothing like the the social media age that has highlighted the fakeness and the inherent pain of only presenting yourself as a very superficial level. So those who are fed up with and totally sickened by the fakeness of the superficial, they are asking for satsang and they are needing satsang and they are getting great benefit from satsang, which means to know your true self, sat, to know yourself, yourself unchanging, indestructible, amaram, to know yourself full and complete, free from rag and dwesh, madhuram, amaram ham, madhuram ham. Again, how this is another description of what is satsang. And I think it's happening. But maybe we needed that disillusionment in order for it to become really valued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. And I think that's a perfect point for us to segue and start to wrap up. I know you did give us a teaser with your words of wisdom with the importance of meditation. And we've talked about the importance of mantra and satsang. And is there any last words of wisdom you'll leave for the curious yogis listening? <laughs> I would say that the curious yogi has been brought to a state of inquiry that is saying, as being able to recognize a human being's pain. And maybe they won't describe it as pain, because no one wants to even say that word pain. They say unease or sense of dissatisfaction. But ultimately, if we look at each other, human beings cause a lot of pain to each other. And and especially human beings are causing a lot of pain to themselves. And I think one who is curious is really saying, is it necessary? And is it, am I helpless to live a state of pain? Unease, worry, burden, pressure, fear, worry. Is this, is this it? The curious one, inherently somehow in their inner being, which is their their true intelligence, is saying, I don't accept these limitations. I want to know what is beyond these limitations. And that is Advaita Vedanta. To reach the end is to say, I don't want to be in pain anymore. I don't want to be in pain for myself and I don't want to create pain to my loved ones and to my society. That is a great state of consciousness. So if you're listening to this podcast, it means you have already opened that state of consciousness beyond the boundary of pain. Now we only need to recognize that and you had used the word mastery. How do we enhance that that we already have so we're not trying to find something that we don't have already how to tap into that curiosity to go beyond pain which is to say to reach our full potential as loving caring harmonious beings with each other 
and particularly to be able to be with oneself. So I think maybe I just wanted to add that, that we're, we're talking this Advaita Vedanta, Rag, Dvesh, Vivek, Vairagya, all these words and, and watching the whole design of this outer focus, being able to be turned within. But what for? What is it ultimately? Because a person rightly and instinctively, if you could say, not instinct as of the senses, the instinct of the senses, but that inner calling of the being is a state of no pain. And so there's an intolerance to pain and there's an intolerance to want to live in pain. And that is the real curious yogi. How can I go beyond pain, which ultimately then they learn, how can I expand my consciousness beyond this waking consciousness that is of differences, of change, of separation, of experiences, and all that which creates uncertainty and insecurity. How can I now know the direction out of pain, into freedom, into bliss, true bliss, which is the contentment of oneself. So it needs to be brought in, the relevance of satsang, not just as a philosophy, but as a way to antidote the pain or unease or sense of separation one experiences within themselves and... Therefore, if they experience it within themselves, they are going to create it, externally also. And all the while not knowing how to look back within oneself. And secondly, you said last words of wisdom, it's only repeating what I've already said. Don't blame the mind. Don't criticize yourself. Use the power in your mind to awaken it, to make it the greatest mind, to be an enlightened mind, to make it a light, make it pure observing power, pure knowing vision. And this, if one can be a light and ignite themselves and be a light unto yourself, then that light will shine and does shine. As you said, how to bring it in the waking state? It shines light on this waking state, which just means the functioning state. And then why do we function? Why do we have these bodies? Not to suffer. Not to cause pain. Not to feel alienated and isolated. Not to feel burdened by worry and fear of how am I going to pay the next bill? Can we bring a light that makes us creative, uh, resourceful, that we'll know how to better use our energy, not waste our energies in worry and in social media or all of this presentation of ourselves, but enhance the energy that's never ever a victim of our circumstances. We can rise up out of the pressures that society puts on us to just function. We are not here only just to function and pay bills and feel the pressure of that or to somehow try and get along with each other and feel ourselves fighting and dissatisfied with each other and finding fault with each other. It's not the purpose of why we have these bodies. We have these bodies to ignite the curious, our true potential. That potential is amaram, indestructible self. Know it. 
we can know that we can absolutely live that also with the help of each other which is why I've always said we need to create a satsang community it's not just a single person sitting up on a stage giving talks to to unenlightened people <laughs> it's unenlightened and enlightened it's it's not this as i said at the very beginning it's not this vertical grade 1 grade 2 grade 3 kind of system again and again saturate the mind in the knowledge of your true self and that is the light of being everyone is that light it's not that some are deserving and some are not who can recognize that that's who we are and uh, that's what I would say that's what has been discovered by many people mm-hmm. <laughs> well you definitely are that light I know for me and a lot of people just shining it and not only shining it but helping or aiding the awareness to recognize its own self so I just love your light and I love you so much and I'm um, really thankful that you took the time to come on the show today and I will put um, the Wisdom of Meditation website in the show notes if anyone wants to join your online satsang um, and put the um, Bandcamp link for oh, the Care Time group as well. Yes. Can I just, you said about the light, can I just add one more thing? I remember yes, yes. sitting with Swamiji um, when I was just had been there only a few years and I would go to him because I felt my light was extinguished and I needed to go in order to be ignited again and I was always running to him with my problems and it felt like I was always availing of his light and one time I I was sitting with him and there was a tray of candles in front of him many candles and I expressed this. I said, Swamiji, I always seem to come to you when I'm needing something or I'm upset or I'm, I'm feeling lost and feeling confused. And, I, you know, I've, as if, like, it was not fair, you know, <laughs> like, um, as if I wanted to show him my light side, not always just come with my darkness. And he had such a way of his transmission more than what he said although what he said of course took the mind there but his transmission was with such understanding and in that understanding so much love and to know that love on that level of understanding rather than just the love of bodies or the love of minds meeting or the love of experience it's that love of the recognition and the full understanding of of the of yourself that he just looked over at this tray of candles and he picked up one candle and he blew it out like that. And then he leaned the candle over to another candle and he said, when the candle gets uh, extinguished, when the light becomes extinguished, he said, you simply lean the candle over to the light. And then he just lit that candle and again sat it down on the tally of candles. And this image, I think this is my name, my full name is Deep Shikar. But since that's a little harder to say, Swamiji suggested that we just say Shikar. But Deep Shikar is that flame, that light, that brilliance of being, 
Let it be forever lit. And there's no shame. And that's what I felt I offered to him in that session with him. I felt a kind of shame that I wasn't able to maintain the light that he had named me. There is no shame at all for coming to satsang saying, I need to be lit. And we must never blame ourselves when it appears that that light has been extinguished. Because ultimately that light cannot be extinguished. Only in that candle it was extinguished. And that candle just needs to lean over because the light is always somewhere. It just needs to lean over and again it's lit. To me that's what satsang is. Someone's always carrying the light and that flame. There's many of us, as you know, many of your people interviewing a lot of us who are lit. How you now establish yourself to be ever lit. That's the sadhana. And as I said, no sense of fault or blame and certainly no shame any time you feel you need to ignite and lean over and borrow that flame. That flame is inexhaustible. You never hear fire saying, oh, actually, everyone, I'm at uh, 20% here only. (laughs) I've got a shortage of flame. (laughs) I've got a shortage of fire. Swamiji would say, the sun shines in the sky every single day and never asks for one dollar of your taxes in order for it to shine. It shines freely indestructibly, eternally, it is ever lit. It is ever Amaramham, Madaramham. So thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. I'm sure I um, spoke many, many more words than maybe your listener was expecting. But what can I say? It's that uh, light. It's not me. It's the light speaking. So I surrender to that. And it's perfect and brilliant. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you, sweetheart. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Curious Yogi Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps the show reach more people. Or share on social. And of course, follow on your favorite podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. I appreciate the love and I appreciate you. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the yogi's path together. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time. <laughs>